There's three readings this morning. The first is a reading from the second book of Samuel. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. A reading from the gospel according to Luke. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Second reading from Luke's gospel. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. It's, it's also my privilege to uh, introduce to you um, our guest preacher today, Craig Fry. Craig, come on up. Um, Christian Leadership Concepts, which some of you may know of, it's called CLC, is a men's ministry that invites men to go deep into God's Word and deep in fellowship with other men and invites men into a two-year journey. And many of you I know have been um, in CLC groups, as, as have I. Um, Craig is the president and CEO of Christian Leadership Concepts and has served in that capacity now for several years. And so we welcome him to preach here today. But my introduction would not be complete if I didn't sort of finish off the story, and that is that really those of us who know Craig know that the most important thing about Craig, or really the best thing, frankly, about Craig is that he has somehow persuaded Wendy Stanball, our longtime sister and member here, to uh, marry him next month. So we're excited about that for you. So let me, uh, let me pray for Craig. Father God, we thank you so much for Christian leadership concepts that you have raised up. Father, and thank you for Craig's service in this ministry. I pray, Father, that you would continue to um, draw men to this ministry, to deepen um, in their walk with you, and to uh, encourage other men to do the same. 
Father, today, would you use Craig as your servant to speak your words, to encourage us. And Father, I pray that as a result of what Craig preaches today, that we would understand just a little bit better the magnificence of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, West End Community Church. I am honored and humbled to uh, share a word with you. I'm charged with the responsibility of speaking about the role of the Holy Spirit in corporate worship. Now, I know that Carter Crenshaw, our pastor and my friend, will be listening to the tape of this sermon. He expressed to me yesterday his great love for you and that he is praying for us as we gather in corporate worship. That's the heart of a good pastor, isn't it? And Carter, since you're listening to this tape, let me go on record as saying you owe me lunch because I paid the last two times. And so uh, I, that's probably not a word from the Lord, a word from Craig, but it's a good one. Let me start this way. There's a very old religious guidebook, one with which many of us are familiar, that asks this question. What is the chief end of man? We could translate that, what is our primary purpose? And the answer is given, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we should glorify God and we should enjoy glorifying God. Now, somehow, I've gotten off track, at least I did in my earlier years, and I believed that those two themes were mutually exclusive. You are probably aware that that's not even close to what the Bible teaches. Earlier in our worship service, we read Psalm 147.1. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. So praise of the Lord is pleasant, meaning we should enjoy it. And praise is fitting, meaning it's appropriate that we enjoy it. You see, enjoying God's presence, being led by His Spirit as we gather in worship, is one of the central needs of our lives. It nurtures us, it deepens us, and it reveals the true appetite of our souls. An accompanying passage is 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to what? Well, freedom to praise God, and freedom to enjoy praising God. But I have a confession to make, and it's not easy for me to make it. It is far too easy for me to lose sight of the glory of God. It is far too easy for me to lose sight of the freedom that the Holy Spirit provides and replace God's glory and the freedom of His Spirit with activities and responses that are not the work of His hands. Simply put, I can find myself trading the reality and the freedom of God's Spirit for self-made righteousness. In fact, I fought it just a few minutes ago. As we were singing together in corporate worship, I felt prompted by the Spirit to raise my hands in praise and worship of our Lord. But I hesitated. And do you know why I hesitated? Because I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of what you might think of me. And the internal conversation included this thought. Well, for crying out loud, we're Presbyterian. Do we even do such a thing? And then I'm going to come up on stage. They're going to see me. And I don't want them to form a judgment opinion against me. That's sad, isn't it? That's weak, isn't it? But it's true. How did I get to this place? I don't know. 
Why do you fight the same thing I do? I don't know. I can at least say I came by it honestly. You see, I grew up in a religious tradition that was hardline, hardshell Baptist. I don't know if you're familiar with that stream of theology, but we thought that Southern Baptists were liberals. Now, whenever I say that, I get a chuckle from the crowd. But I mean it seriously. We thought that Southern Baptists were liberals. I heard sermons on hair length and skirt length and makeup and jewelry. And it was more about behavior modification than it was the indwelling spirit of the Lord and the grace that we're offered through Christ. Now, they were good people. They are good people. And they mean well. And it was probably more how I interpreted what was said than what was said. But I do remember an eighth grade boys Sunday school class where the theme of the Sunday school class was how it is inappropriate for teenage boys to go to the movie theater. The whole Sunday school lesson. Well, like an idiot, I raised my hand and I said, well, I go to the movie theater. Oh my gosh. It was like the Antichrist had entered the room. You know, what, what, do you, what am I supposed to do here? Inadvertently, I had backed the teacher into a corner. Now he had to defend his position. And so he said, Craig, what if the Lord came back and you were at the movie theater? What then? And I said, I guess I'd miss the rest of the movie, wouldn't I? That is not the response he was looking for. But it's true, isn't it? And so we're caught in this trap of living a life prompted by self more than the Spirit, which always leads to the same result 100% of the time. Drab, dreary Christians, a divided church, and a very confusing message. Now, those of you who know me well, you know that I love to play golf. I'm not very good at it, but I love to play the game. Let me tell you how I learned to play golf. I, because I didn't begin playing golf until I was 40. When I was 40 years old, I was a church planter. And I planted a church with the Lord's help and God's grace in Upper East Tennessee. This is the buckle of the Bible Belt the bastion of conservative, conservative, traditional, ritualistic religion. And we were a church of grace and celebration. In fact, that was the name of the church. Well, my associate minister, minister kept coming to church with all of these movers and shakers and influencers in the community. And I said, Dave, where do you meet all these men? He said, I meet them on the golf course. Think about it, Craig, for four hours at least, I've got a captive audience. They are in a golf cart right next to me. We've got to talk about something, so I talk about Jesus, and I invite them to church. And I thought, that is amazing. And so I took some golf lessons. I learned to play a little golf. Now rock it forward. On a Saturday, I went to a municipal course. Anybody could play this course. And I was a single, meaning that I was by myself. Well, they paired me up with a guy that I'd never met before. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. And he was having a really rough day at golf. He was hitting the ball left. He was hitting the ball right. He was hitting it long. He was hitting it short. It was awful. And his language reflected that. Ragging, fragging, ragging, fragging, ragging, 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 ragging. It was rough. So this guy, let's 
call him Daryl, since that's his name. Anyway, Daryl is having a rough go of it. On the seventh tee box, he turns to me, and he said, okay, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm the pastor of the church down the road that's meeting in that junior high. He said, oh, for, forgive me, Father. And I said, I'm not Catholic. He said, well, what do I call you? I said, Craig would be better than what you've been calling me for seven holes. <laughs> and we had a good laugh. We rounded the turn, which means we finished the ninth hole. We're about to play the tenth. He walked into the clubhouse. Now remember, Upper East Tennessee. And he turns to me and he says, do you mind if I get a beer? Now at this point, for once in my life at least, I was led by the Holy Spirit. And this is what I said, because I'm not smart enough to think of this response. I said, Daryl, you can have a beer. And he said, really? What kind of church do you pastor? And I said, the kind of church that's more concerned with where you spend eternity than with what you drink on the golf course. His mouth kind of dropped open a little bit. He said, I've never been to a church like that. I said, you can be at that kind of church tomorrow. I'll make you a deal, Daryl. If you come to my church, I'll wear this outfit and preach in it. He said, you won't do it. I said, yes, I will. And I did. And Daryl showed up. Three months later, I led Daryl to Christ. Now, unbeknownst to me, Daryl owned a construction company. We needed a church building. Daryl pulls me aside one day, and he said, I think I'd like to build the church. I said, well, that's great, Daryl. Why don't you submit a bid, submit that to the building committee, and we'll take it from there. He said, I don't think you understand. He said, the Holy Spirit is calling me to build your building for free. Did I know that? When I met Daryl on the golf course, no, I did not. Did God know that? Yes, he did. And the Holy Spirit set me up for a divine appointment. That's how God moves. Now, you might be wondering how we're going to transition to three very diverse passages of Scripture. What is the connecting point between the three passages of Scripture that we will overview in just a minute? Here is the recurring theme. You will see a clear contrast between a group or a person who is led by the Spirit or a group and, or person who is led by self. In the first passage, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see how the Holy Spirit can give us freedom from personal pride. Michael, David's wife, stood there, spectator to one of the most glorious moments in all of history. The Ark of the Covenant, long held by the Philistines, was coming back to Jerusalem. And leading the procession was her husband, King David. David was caught up in the exuberance of the moment, and he cast aside all concern for personal dignity, along with most of his clothes. He donned a simple prayer cloth, it's called an ephod. And he joyfully, with childlike abandon, danced before the Lord. Yeah, you heard me. He danced. In the Hebrew language, leaping and twirling. A party broke out. 
The people shouted. The trumpets blared. The crowd went crazy. Now let me ask, why don't we worship like that? Why don't I worship like that? I confessed a minute ago. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Not afraid of the Lord, but afraid of you. The Holy Spirit prompts me to do something, and there's a check in my spirit. I don't want to sound harsh, but it's true. I know it's true of me. Because my primary focus quickly becomes my neighbor's reaction, not the God of glory. What was Michael's reaction? She wanted no part of this celebration. No, sir. When David came home, disgust was written on her face. Sarcasm dripped from her tongue. In verse 20, my, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Could the contrast be any clearer? David's actions were motivated by personal humility. All that Michael saw was the absence of decorum. David's actions were motivated by consuming praise for God without any thought of how it would affect his reputation as the king. In verses 21 and 22, I will celebrate before the Lord. That's declarative. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and humiliated in my own eyes. So here is the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory, resting place of God. It had come home to Jerusalem, but Michael refused to celebrate because she was embarrassed. Verse 20, what would the slave girls say? That was her only focal point. Did you hear me? What would the slave girls say? What a tragedy. To have God's presence come to town, to have the Lord at hand and yet be unmoved by Him. It was a marvelous day. A glorious day. A magnificent day to praise God. But Michael missed it. In the second passage, Luke chapter 19 we see how the Holy Spirit can release us and give us freedom from religious ritual. And there they stood looking with disdain at the strange circus-like parade winding its way through the city. The crowd was shouting, Hosanna, and they spread palm branches and clothing in the road. And for whom? For a governor? For a king? No, a carpenter on a donkey. But we know that wasn't just any carpenter. This one was the one they called Messiah. There are three distinct textual clues in this passage. First of all, the phrase, blessed is the king. That implies direct messianic significance. It's a reference to Zechariah 9.9. Second, who comes in the name of the Lord, reminiscent of Yeshua the Greek word is in the neuter singular, which means one of the same rank or equal to. And third, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Now let me ask, who is able to influence things in heaven? Who is worthy of glory in the highest places? God alone. And the religious leaders would know all of that. They would have been well-versed in all of it, and yet they refused to join in worship. And you know why. 
because Jesus was a threat to their carefully constructed system of rituals and traditions. Now, if we're honest, doesn't the Holy Spirit sometimes scare you because He challenges you and you come face to face with the rituals and traditions that maybe you grew up with and you ask, why do we do it this way? Is it really necessary? I think those are healthy questions to ask. So here, this crowd cried out until their voices were heard over the pandemonium. And the Pharisees demanded that Jesus rebuke his followers for their unseemly display. But Jesus was having none of that. No, sir. He saw things from an eternal perspective, not just a temporal one. And he told the Pharisees, I wouldn't think of silencing their praise if they don't shout for me. The rocks will cry out. Point of clarification. The Pharisees often get a bad rap. But they were not bad people. The Pharisees saw themselves as protectors of the sacred. But in the end, the Pharisees' idea of worship had more to do with technical correctness than intimate personal devotion to a loving God. The very thing to which all of us are called. Right out of seminary, I served a church in the area, and this church still had revival services. If you're not familiar with that term, revival services are typically a week-long event, and we'd have a guest speaker, and we would invite the church to come together and bring their friends, and the goal was for the church to be revived spiritually. Now, as was our custom, we would visit absentee church members during the week, during the day. Our guest preacher for this week was Dr. Leonard Ravenhill. You may not be familiar with that name, but he was a very prominent evangelist back in the day. And I had the privilege of accompanying Dr. Ravenhill as we visited an absentee member. We invited this gentleman to come to the revival services, and his response was typical and it was classic. You've probably heard it before. He said, and I quote, I don't have to come to church to go to heaven. Have you heard that before? I don't have to come to church to go to heaven. To which Dr. Ravenhill responded, you are absolutely right. But may I ask you a question? Why would you want to go to heaven in the first place? What do you think we're going to do there anyway? We're going to worship. If you don't want to worship here, what makes you think you're going to want to worship there? It's all about worship, is it not? Well, the Pharisees had the same problem. The same problem as that absentee church member. They had forgotten the purpose of worship. They were so consumed with religious duty, they failed to see that the object of their devotion was literally right in front of them. They stood eye to eye with the one that they had longed for, and they didn't even recognize him. It was a magnificent day. It was a glorious day to praise God. But they missed it. The third passage is Luke chapter 15. And here we see that the Holy Spirit can empower us and give us freedom from brotherly bitterness. He stood in the field leaning on a shovel with an expression on his face that would sour milk because the farm had been transformed into a carnival. A carnival he had no intention of attending. 
And so his father left the house and pleaded with him, but he wanted no part of it, and he gave a poor, pitiful me speech. The father answered his son's bitter reply with these tender words. We had to celebrate. We had no choice, son. Well, the older brother still wanted nothing to do with the celebration. And do you know why? I bet you do. Because the younger brother and his return, that was a celebration of grace, a concept the older brother didn't want to understand. Not only did he not understand it, he didn't want to understand it. And the danger for us in the modern church is we don't understand it either. And our attitude, if we're not careful, can be the same. He thought that people should get what they deserve. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. You see that in his speech to his father in verses 29 through 30. He thought he'd gotten the short end of the stick. And you know what? He was right. The big brother was right. Little brother had done nothing to deserve the reception, the new robe, the ring, the feast. But the real tragedy and the story that I missed for years, it's right before us. And here it is. The sin of the older brother was just as great as the sin of the younger brother. Both brothers needed to repent. Both brothers needed to return to the Father. Both had rejected the movement of the Spirit in their lives. Notice in verse 30, this son of yours, the older brother says, not this brother of mine. And for years I was blind to this. I refused to admit my bitterness, my self-righteousness, my spirit of judgmentalism, which was just as ugly and just as sick and just as serious as the sin of the prodigal son. Really, the only character worthy of emulation in this story is the father. And he said to his eldest son, my child, you are with me always, and all that I have is yours. Here, in clear contrast of the work of the spirit, is the work of the flesh. And what the older brother didn't realize or didn't want to realize is that the constant unrelenting demonstration of his father's love was always there. It was a permanent fixture and the older brother had lost nothing. He could have joined the party. He could have enjoyed the splendor of the day knowing that he could access his father's love anytime he wanted it. I've been in ministry for a long time. I also spent a season of my life in the corporate world. And in both places, I've seen the same thing. It has been my experience that the greatest expressions of praise and those most open to the work of the Spirit are reflected in the lives of those who need it the most. Those with the deepest hurts, those who have drawn deepest from the well of God's grace, those who are broken and outcast and bruised. And isn't that usually when the healer shows up? I'm one of those people. From an earthly standpoint, I have no business standing before you and preaching a sermon. I'm one 
who has scars in his past. I'm not proud of them. I wish they didn't happen. But God's grace has covered them all. But I'm still haunted by those memories. And I'm also motivated by a life quote that was given to me by my, by my favorite seminary professor, J.W. McGorman. He didn't know he was giving it to me, but he did. And he stated in class one day, my life gives testimony to the fact that God can hit straight with a crooked stick. Ladies and gentlemen, I am a crooked stick. But for some reason, God has chosen to use me. Why? I don't know. But he is worthy of my praise. He is worthy of my service. And I've done nothing to deserve it. And I've done nothing to earn it. This is a great day to revel in God's mercy. Today, July 14th, 2019, is a great day to bask in the overflow of God's grace and the healing power of His Spirit. And I don't want to miss it. I want to close by sharing with you my favorite passage of Scripture. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all of His benefits. Who forgives your sins, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Amen. Amen. Amen.